Hey everyone, this is Dr. Baffa, and today we've got an exciting podcast episode for you. A conversation with Dr. Paul Comfort, PhD in sports biomechanics and strength and conditioning, and an expert on the PowerClean and PowerClean variants. This conversation originally grew out of research I was doing for a video on the PowerClean, and you can watch that video now on ATG's Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash allthingsgym. The video is over 20 minutes dedicated to the PowerClean and includes its history, basics of the movement, parts of the interview with Dr. Comfort, and thoughts on when to use it with athletes. But right now, we've got the interview with Dr. Paul Comfort, so check it out. We hope you enjoy it. And when you're ready, head over to Patreon and check out the PowerClean video. To start, Dr. Comfort, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, your research, uh, and where you are, I guess, how you got into it and where you are now? Yep, no problem. So I'm currently a reader in strength and conditioning at the University of Salford, which is in the city of Salford, right on the outskirts of Manchester, so it's in Greater Manchester itself. Um, most people don't know where Salford is, but they'll know where Manchester is. And I started off um, strength and conditioning um, as a sort of occupation when in the UK it wasn't considered an occupation. It was you were a fitness coach or you were a personal trainer, etc. Uh, there was no UK Strength and Conditioning Association. There was only the NSCA that anyone else was aware of. Um, so I started doing that while I was at university studying for a sports science degree. Um, working at two extremes, really, working either with athletes that wanted to get better at their sport or training um, generally wealthy, overweight businessmen that wanted to um, try and lose weight at any time they were going skiing, etc. <laughs> so started off uh, doing that, um, which was really interesting and nice to have that sort of diversity. And then uh, continued my education, did my master's degree, started teaching at a university in Southampton in the UK, and then moved on to a college in Essex, then on to Middlesex University, and then to Salford, where I am now. And sort of through that time, I was trying to combine where possible, working with athletes as a sort of strength and conditioning coach, while also um, teaching and trying to undertake research uh, where possible. Uh, so that sort of gives you the best of both worlds and helps you to sort of realize all those real world constraints of mm -hmm. um, how research is or isn't applied or sometimes cannot be applied. And then it mm -hmm. brings you to the question of, well, should we really be doing this research if no one can ever apply it? Mm -hmm. uh, my sort of philosophy with research is that you should almost reverse engineer it, that you should identify what works in a sport based on sound scientific principles and then do the more scientific and lab-based studies to determine why it worked. Then we can identify, okay, if it works at this level, but then certain adaptations don't take place, how can we then refine that? And then we can go back to sort of the whole body applied athlete scenario, tweak a few things, see if that works. And then again, we can almost reverse engineer it and try and figure out what does work, why it works, and why we aren't getting certain adaptations we would expect to get. Uh, the research side of things probably only really took off for me 10, 12 years ago. Bearing in mind, I've, I've been teaching now for almost, almost 20 years. So initially trying to balance some of the applied work with um, teaching and trying to actually get research off the ground properly was difficult. Um, but luckily, while I've been at Salford for the last 12 years, we've been able to really um, sort of combine all of those things and, and move, in, move in the right direction with everything and answer some of those questions. So 
I really started off looking at different variations of weightlifting exercises probably about 11, 12 years ago, partly because a student actually asked the question of, well, if there's this research from uh, Inoka, Garhammer, Hakkinen, et cetera, that shows the second pull phase of the clean generates the most power, why don't we just do that? What's the point in the rest of it? <laughs> and it made me sort of scratch my head a bit and think, well, actually, yeah, that's a good point. But then are we getting the highest power there because we've already got momentum on the bar. It's already moving. Technically you've unweighted it. It takes less force to accelerate it to the same extent because it's already moving. So we decided we'd start looking at um, variations of the power clean. We went with the power clean instead of the clean because we had access to weightlift. We didn't have access to weightlifters. We had access to rugby league and rugby union players who most of them just can't get into that full squat position yeah. to catch the bar anyway. And it's there, it's actually more applicable to most athletes who tend to choose the power clean over the over the clean. Um, yeah, so that's really where that, that research started. And then the more we dug into it, the more questions we ended up with, as you do with research. Uh, you know, you get to the end of writing up your manuscript, you identify the limitations, areas for future research. You've got one paper but you've actually got another four or five questions, mm -hmm. which is great from a career perspective because it means that you've just identified the next few studies you need to do. But it continually opens more and more questions and then trying to get to the point where, how do we apply this? Okay, so we, we did a whole range of studies about um, power clean variations, whether it's uh, you know comparing power clean from the floor, from the knee, from mid thigh, um, variations on loading, et cetera. But then what, once we've identified acutely, what's the ideal um, load to put on the bar? What's the ideal variation to perform to maximize force, rate of force development power? Well, then you get to the point where you think, well, okay, that's brilliant. But so what? If we do that for a four, six, eight week training period, do we get any better? Mm -hmm. um, does it improve our performance more than other variations? Um, and that's the bit that's tricky. Um, to be honest with you, the first, I've started a study like that. We've now published a few, but I started probably four or five of those studies, which got part of the way through with team sport athletes. The coach wasn't happy because they lost a couple of games and changed all of their training and the study fell apart. So um, it's not the easiest thing to do. It would have been much easier to, you know, conducted that in a group of weightlifters. But again, the limitation we have is we can't apply that necessarily to team sport athletes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've really now got to the point where we're trying to conduct different in training interventions to say, okay, if we program the exercises in this way, this way with these different variations of exercises and these different loaded paradigms, does it result in greater uh, performance enhancement? So you raise a, a couple of interesting points, but before I move on, I wonder if you can expand on them. One is your take on the relationship between research and training and the idea that you start from the training and then want to dig back and see what what works or why it works, right? Um, yep. So early on, did you feel, or you and your student, the one who suggested this research, like something intuitively about the power clean and its variations and then decided to go back or how did that work out? It was really from looking at that research that was out there, um, primarily in weightlifters um, and the fact that that second pull phase generates the, the highest force, velocity, power, depending on which study it was. So it might have been barbell velocity. There was somewhere it's forced from the use of a force plate. Mm -hmm. 
but we also know that that's that transition phase if you go through that sort of scoop double knee bend whatever term you want to use for it that's that in theory should stimulate the stretch shortening cycle and therefore should give us additional um force velocity and power if yeah. the stretch shortening cycle works as we expect it to uh so then we needed to sort of try and say well okay we've also got more time if we're starting from the knee or if we start from the floor you've got more time to apply force so following the basic principles of biomechanics if we've got an increase in time the impulse will be greater as long as force isn't lower so if there's a greater impulse acceleration should be greater and therefore the velocity should be greater so why doesn't that always work Mm-hmm. And actually, some of the research we've done now, which shows that if you um, do the mid-thigh variations compared to the hang variations or the variations from the knee, that you end up with higher um, force, higher um, power, etc. Well, you have to end up with higher force because if you're catching at the same height, so you're displacing the bar to the same extent, but you've got less displacement during that propulsion phase or less time because of that reduced um, displacement during the propulsion phase, you end up then with having to produce a disproportionately higher force because the duration is decreased. Mm-hmm. So we answer the question then sort of sat there scratching our, our, our chins saying, well, we should have figured that out. That was obvious <laughs> if we just unpick the biomechanics. However, if I just explain that to somebody, they probably wouldn't believe it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still then have to go and do the research. So. Yeah, that was really a case of if we'd have thought about it in more detail, we probably could have answered some of those questions. Uh, but once we had conducted the research, found that those trends were sort of consistent across a few different populations uh, and in a few different scenarios, then it was a case saying, well, OK, well, we know this is happening. So what else do we need to do now? Mm-hmm. We've identified that mid thigh variation appears to be the most effective. And if we're doing a mid thigh pull or a mid thigh power clean, um obviously we can only with the power clean variation we have to catch we can only go up to one rm but if we're just doing a pulling variation we can go way above that so how far can we go um and actually we can even go lower because the the problem is sometimes and and you you'll know yourself if you do a power clean with a light load the bar ends up so high um did either hit you in the chin or the technique looks awful or you just don't put in a maximal effort yeah um so it's really a case of us trying to answer some of the questions that provided us with more and it would be lovely to expand beyond what we found so i've still got a whole load of data on some of the training studies um, looking at the uh, adaptations to muscle architecture mm-hmm. so have we got an increase in thickness of the muscle as the panation angle or the fascicle length change to help Im- improve either force or velocity of, of, of muscle actions uh, but that takes a huge amount of time to analyze. So I've still got a bit more of that to analyze. So we're going to try and unpick that. And it would be lovely to be able to get down to the sort of cellular level, take biopsies of people. We just don't have the facility or the time yeah. to do that. And we and we don't have the subjects to, who would allow us to do that. <laughs> there might be people listening to this who say, sign me up. I would, you know, yeah, yeah, happily be biopsied. <laughs> well, I know Professor Andy Galpin has managed to do it with some weightlifters in the U.S., okay. uh, straight after a competition and got some very interesting results but that's just sort of a snapshot what we really need to know now is what actually what changes um as you go through that you know so we can identify that you know the the muscle fiber types and and those sorts of things with well-trained individuals but what we don't know is it's a not a long longitudinal study so were they gifted and they naturally had a really high percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers or was that 
trainable. It is trainable, but how much of it was through yeah. training? Um, but again, they're the studies that end up taking a lot more time, money, um, and unfortunately, sports science and strength and conditioning research doesn't generally get a huge amount of research funding. Yeah. Um, this is a, kind of an aside, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem like despite all the studies, despite years of, let's just look at Olympic weightlifting, right? Decades of successful weightlifters, successful countries, we still have a really incomplete understanding of what works and why it works. And you can find huge variation in what people think will lead to the right outcomes. And you can also see it. I mean, you can see, you know, people think certain ways, but also you can see people being successful with vastly different approaches. Am I correct in that, do you think? Yeah, you're definitely correct. There are a whole host of different methodologies and schools of thought. And if you just focus on weightlifting itself, you know, weightlifting, when you look at the um, task, it's a relatively simple sport to identify what it takes to win compared to a team sport where you've, you know, got a whole range of other factors. And progressive overload works. It's a pretty simple concept, isn't it? Progressive overload, which people get wrong. Um, so <laughs> as long as you're creating progressive overload um, and doing that systematically through your training program and you're appropriately um, planning and periodizing your training program, lots of different methods will work. You know, so we're always going to get improvements, but it's when you get to that more elite level then you've really got to identify, well, what is it that really makes the difference? We know with weightlifting, strength is one of the key factors. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need that, you know, phenomenal skill level and speed of movement to be able to go from that sort of rapid uh, extension of hips, knees, and possibly ankles. Some lifters don't um, plantar flex, but to go through that range of motion and then allow yourself to relax and almost force yourself, drag yourself underneath the bar brace control everything when you take the, the sort of uh, the forces of you dropping so quickly and the barbell although if you catch the barbell with very good technique it's right near its peak displacement so it isn't crashing down on you which makes that bit a bit easier um and then from there get out of that squat position and then you know go either that's your lift done if it's a snatch or then compose yourself and get ready for a jerk <laughs> and it should in theory be quite simple Mm -hmm. But there are so many differences in technique that you see people adopting as well. So I think when you then look at, well, we know we need to get people strong, but there are loads of different ways of getting people strong. They are, there's so many different ways which all work, but which is ideal, which is optimal, and that will vary across individuals. And then actually you need to match that up with their technical ability. And you would think, well, once you get to the elite level, you'll technique should be as good as it's going to get but there's some people when you watch them performing the movements where they're definitely inefficient in certain aspects and they get through because of a high level of strength and then you've got others who are nowhere near as strong but they're so good technically that um they can cope with not being as strong as other individuals because the posture is better and, and they're not you know it's just so much more precise so i think there's there's such a huge range because if you create that progressive overload people will get stronger Mm -hmm. And if you plan it and, and do that appropriately, it's very, very effective. As soon as you try and get that into, you know, other sports, that, then it's even more complex because yeah. you can't, you know, we know what it takes to get a weightlifter strong, strong. And the programs generally are relatively basic. <laughs> it's lots of squatting. It's lots of pulling, lots of hipping, gin. It's to get you strong and then the technical work as well. <clears throat> but you couldn't train anyone else like a weightlifter. 
Mm -hmm. Because for a weightlifter, their skill-based movement, their technical and tactical training is weightlifting. Whereas for team sport athletes, their technical and tactical training is kicking, throwing a ball, whatever that might be. Yeah. So a weightlifter will naturally do a much higher volume of lifting much more frequently because they have to refine that skill, which makes sometimes making assumptions from weightlifting to other sports or other sports into weightlifting really difficult because people obsess over the gym-based program and what they can see on paper, what you're doing in the gym, sets, reps, loads, etc., and forget about all the other stuff that will be going on in those other sports uh, and all the mobility work and assistance work that goes on, which isn't normally written down in a program for weightlifters. Mm. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you touched on strength, the importance of strength for weightlifters. I imagine strength is also important for other athletes. Um, and in your dissertation, you have a very long section on power. And so I'm wondering, and how you define power. And you mentioned at one point, and others have mentioned, the importance of strength for power. Yep. I did my best to follow your discussion of power, but you can explain it better than I can, I'm sure. <laughs> so can you discuss, because you mentioned power, the way we define power can be very different for Olympic weightlifters as opposed to other athletes, right? Or what's important in power. So I wonder if you could just touch yep. on the relationship between strength and power and then how you would define power, or I guess how you might define it for weightlifters versus for other athletes. Power is power. It's work divided by time, or most people know it is force multiplied by velocity, or to simplify it, strength times speed. Um, what's really important when you're looking at it from a weightlifter's point of view is the velocity and the displacement of the barbell. Mm -hmm. So we'd really be considered, uh, be more concerned with the power applied to the barbell. So a lot of the early studies by Garhammer, where they've reported power, it's normally the barbell mass. Um, and along with the barbell mass, you've also then got the velocity of the barbell from the displacement of it and the time it's taken to displace that bar. That's really, really important because ultimately the success in weightlifting is displacing the bar sufficiently. So it gives you time to get underneath that bar and catch it in whichever lift you're performing and then get out the hole, hopefully. So <clears throat> the, the velocity of the barbell or power applied to the bar is much more important for weightlifters. However, it's not as important for other athletes. For other athletes, we need to know the power applied to the system. So the system then being the barbell mass plus the athlete's mass. So normally then when we calculate that, it's, it's based on the, the force applied to that full system and the velocity at which the system moves at. And if you think about it, from a squatting point of view, you would assume that your center of mass and the barbell probably move at a very similar velocity because the barbell is on your shoulders and it mm -hmm. doesn't leave your shoulders unless you're doing something wrong. So that should, they should be very similar, but actually there's a really interesting um, study by Dr. Jason Lake from Chichester University where they actually calculated the velocity of the individual center of mass the velocity of the barbell and the velocity of the system. So the combined mass of the barbell uh, and the, the athlete. And there's somewhere between uh, 12 and 17% difference in velocity of the, the, the athlete center of mass, the system center of mass and the barbell center of mass because of the change in the configuration of, of you as you squat. If you then take that to the context of something like a snatch, 
where the barbell starts below your center of mass and finishes well above your center of mass, the velocity and displacement of the barbell is dramatically greater than the velocity and displacement of your of the system or of your, your center of mass. So for athletes, we really need to be concerned with how effectively are they applying the force to accelerate the total mass which they're accelerating. So it has to then be the system. Uh, but that's not necessarily as important for a weightlifter mm -hmm. because the end goal is that barbell displacing as much yeah. as possible. Mm -hmm. um, as with any research, I would go back now if I was rewriting my um, my dissertation for my PhD, I would um, probably massively reduce the emphasis on power. <laughs> really? Um, because power probably isn't the key thing we need to consider. And power for athletes or for Olympic weightlifter. Sorry, to... for both. For both. For both, because if you look at something like a something like a counter movement jump, a really simple task, we can end up with in, an increase in power output during a counter movement jump, but a decrease in jump height. Now that wouldn't be a good adaptation. I would always <laughs> want my team sport athletes to jump higher. Yeah, and that's just simply through changing strategy and how they actually move. So if you would do a, a shallow counter movement, you move, you, it takes you a minimal time to perform that task. You have to produce a really high force, but over a sh short time. So because you're producing a high force over a short time, impulse decreases. So you end up leaving the ground at a lower velocity, which is why you don't jump as high. Mm -hmm. If you do a more compliant strategy and you squat deeper, the duration increases, your velocity at takeoff increases, but the force you generated is much lower. And that results in a decrease in power height, but, a, but an increase in jump height. Um, and you see that sometimes with some weightlifting variations as well. Just because sometimes you can get an athlete whose technique improves, and because their technique and their timing improves, they're generating less power. The barbell isn't moving as high, isn't displacing as high, and doesn't move as fast. But they actually just you know, performed a, a 1RM and, and a set, set a PB because mm -hmm. it was a technical improvement. So actually it's more about how effectively we apply force if we apply a force as effectively as we can over a given time frame then we're going to optimize performance and that given time frame is determined based on the task that you're performing whether you know from a normal sporting context with sprinting uh, it's almost counterintuitive you've got a really long contact with the first couple of strides and that gets shorter and shorter so as you accelerate and your contact time reduces, you've got to produce a higher force each time because you've got less time to apply that force. If we look at it from a, a weightlifting context, if we actually pull the bar really, really quickly off the floor, we've reduced time to apply force. And actually, that, that's sometimes when you see people start to lose um, technique and posture as well. Yep. So it's really about how you apply that force, how efficiently and how effectively you apply that force into the ground. Uh, so I would say that probably what gives us power is, you know, your, the force applied and the velocity you end up moving at. They're the two important things, not necessarily the power itself, because just from changing your technique, power could go up. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be jumping higher or more successful at weightlifting. And um, if technique stays the same, yes, but technique doesn't always stay the same. Um, whether that's through coaching somebody to jump, whether that's a, a weightlifter or somebody performing a weightlifting task to try and enhance sports performance, you giving them a simple cue will mm -hmm. completely change the way they move.
Mm-hmm. And that's as simple as if you're telling somebody to jump, tell them to jump as quickly as possible or to jump as high as possible. And they'll jump higher when you say jump high. When you say jump quickly, they just reduce the movement time. And if you mm-hmm. reduce movement time noticeably, then you don't jump as high. Mm-hmm. And it's the same sort of thing with coaching cues sometimes with um, with weightlifting as well. If you give somebody the wrong cue and make them focus on the wrong thing, it mm-hmm. all goes wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that varies between individuals as well. Mm-hmm. Um. So in thinking about the ways that you could produce more power but get a less desirable outcome, I'm thinking too about in weightlifting, uh, and I think some of your research has shown this, that you can get maximal power output or you do get maximal power output in the power clean and variance, but correct me if I'm wrong, in the 60 to 80% range. Is that correct? Yep. So normally, and it varies, it's plus or minus 10% of the, the 1RM um there's not normally a significant difference but a power clean starting from the floor catching in that sort of shallow squat position it's around about 80 percent um and it varies across studies but but it's between 70 and 90 but 80 is sort of the appears to be the sweet spot if it's a hang power clean it's 70 percent but again plus or minus 10 so Mm -hmm. it could be as low as 60 it could be as high as 80 Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're going from mid thigh it's then 60 percent, but it could be as low as 50 and as high as 70. okay so in thinking about training a weightlifter then or or any athlete those percentages will give you the highest power output but maybe aren't what will be most beneficial for an athlete right based on what you just talked about i know this is going to be hard to generalize but if if you could generalize, and if you can't, that's fine. Is there a percentage where you think here is where Olympic weightlifters or other athletes should focus their power clean training on or variations on? That That is one of those questions where unfortunately you have to say it depends. So yeah. if you take it from a weightlifting perspective, if you're trying to refine their technique so you need more and more repetitions to ingrain that technique, you need it at a high load. Mm-hmm. because when they compete it's a maximal or near maximal load so there'd be no good there'd be no point in saying right let's do loads of training down at 70 percent mm-hmm. because for a start you you know if you try doing 70 percent of a clean um it becomes a power clean yeah unless you just go through the motions and you don't pull aggressively and you don't apply force as effectively as you can if the weight's that low then it's not going to be a clean it's not going to be a snatch it would be a power variation of them so for weightlifters really if we're focusing on improving their total scores it, they've got to be doing some lifting up near those sort of 90 percent plus getting up to uh, probably around their sort of opening weights not all of the time but up around their opening weights for when they're competing that also psychologically gives you that confidence that well i do this every day in training or you know mm-hmm. not every day but you, you know you can see what i'm getting at um, if you're trying to ingrain technique, you still need to do those high loads. So different techniques like cluster sets are then really, really effective because you can maintain velocity. If you if you want to do six repetitions, six repetitions at 90%, good luck. Um, that's going to be pretty brutal. But if you do a repetition, whether it's a clean or a snatch, once you've caught the bar and, and, and stood back up, drop the weight, compose yourself, re-grip, go again. You do two repetitions, then give yourself a 20 or 30 second rest period. Rechalk if you need to, wipe the sweat off your face, whatever you need to do at that. You've got 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's, that's quite a time. 
regrip the bar. Your coach can give you some feedback or your training partner can give you some feedback on what was really good or one thing you need to work on. You can go again. So you extend the duration of that set. And there's plenty of research out there now to show that that's actually a really effective way of maintaining movement velocity, therefore maintaining power output. But at the same time, it gives you a really good opportunity to coach an individual and try to find that technique. And then you can get high volumes in um, still with very high loads. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a really good way for a weightlifter to get the high loads in there, get the repetition in there. You do have to be cautious, though, because if you've gone from tradition, if you're doing two or three repetitions normally at 90 percent and you suddenly throw in clusters and you've gone from two or three repetitions up to six repetitions and you do the same number of sets, you've just doubled or tripled your volume. Yeah. And trust me, I, I assessed a, a student's uh, PhD thesis a few years ago now who was looking at cluster sets, uh, Dr. James Stefano under the supervision of Professor Greg Half. And I read something like that, which was 12 repetitions performed in a cluster at 85% of 1RM. And I just thought, that's not possible. I put the thesis down, went down to the weights room and gave it a go. And was very surprised that the loads I was normally lifting for five or six repetitions, I managed three sets of 12. But I nearly fell out of bed the next morning because my legs gave way on me. Um, So you have to be really cautious with some of those things. For weightlifters, it may be okay because they're generally used to quite a high volume anyway. Um, but it's it's very, very fatiguing. So you have to use some of that sparingly. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at other athletes, if we're looking at team sport athletes, again, it's really a case of identifying it the same as it is with a weightlifter. Is strength their limiting factor? Is the ability to produce high levels of force the problem? Or is movement velocity the problem? Because you'll see, especially with team sport athletes, some that are really, really strong but they can't apply that force very effectively. So you watch them do a, you know, you watch them sprinting and they get to a good top speed, but it takes them a while to get there. Or you watch them in the weight room and they're lifting some really heavy loads, but it's always pretty low velocity. They're not really moving with the intent you would like. So for them, we know that the ability to produce force isn't the problem. So if they're not moving at a high velocity, why is that? Is it their ability to express force rapidly? In which case, then we're probably better off using some of those lighter loads, actually getting them to do power variations rather than the full variations, you know, rather than do it um, catching in that four depth squat, maybe giving them a snatch if, it, if they've got the range of motion in, in the shoulders to do a power snatch, because you have to accelerate the barbell up. Once you get to that full extension position, the bar still got to dip- displace another meter or so um, if you're doing a power snatch. So in that situation, you've really got to get that intent in there. Um, but then you need to be using lighter loads to be able to, to perform that. Again, something if you're really focusing on movement velocity, something like cluster sets is going to be really, really efficient and effective mm-hmm. because it gives you that brief rest period. Mm-hmm. Some people do worry. It's not such a problem with weightlifters because <clears throat> if you are a good competitive weightlifter, especially if you're full time, you've got the time to have prolonged training sessions. Yeah. And some of their sessions really go on oh yeah um whereas in other in team sports you might only have a 30 to 45 minute window to to do your your work out in the gym but actually if you partner up with somebody who's of a similar strength to you you know you and i could then get on the weightlifting platform you do two or three reps of an exercise as long as we're using the same or very similar load i can do two or three reps while you rest and we can repeat so you can still make it efficient and effective you don't have to just be stood around um and you can even, you know, that helps to motivate the athlete as well. So mm-hmm. the, the loading is really a case of, right, are we optimizing force production? 
or are we up trying to maximize movement velocity? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of now where I've gone more into that sort of way of thinking rather than what optimizes power. Yeah. Because the end goal isn't always maximizing power. The end goal is, well, we either need the athlete to move more efficiently and effectively and at a higher velocity. Mm-hmm. So if they can already generate a lot of force, that needs to be the emphasis. Or if they're really quick at performing the movements, but actually they're just not that strong, we need yeah. to get more load into them. They need to focus on producing much higher forces mm-hmm. because we know they can produce it efficiently. So if you look at something like a soccer player in the UK, all got really good vertical jumps, all ridiculously weak. They'll tell you how strong they are. Most of them, if you put a barbell with body weight on their back and ask, well, that in itself would probably scare most of them, um, just having a barbell on their back, ask them to try and squat to a decent depth and perform a couple of repetitions. Most won't be able to do it. Wow. Um, So, but they're very good at using the force that they have the ability to generate and using that efficiently and effectively. So they they can accelerate quickly. They can jump really high, but high velocity training isn't going to improve them because their limiting factor is force production. Mm-hmm. Whereas for other athletes, like I said, sometimes within something like rugby union, some of the forwards in, a, in, in rugby union will be able to produce huge amounts of force. That's what they have to do in the scrum. But that makes sense. Yeah. But actually, they can't produce it as rapidly as you would want them to. So then you need to focus on the, the movement velocity. And that's not that you stop one or the other. You just increase the emphasis on force or movement velocity during their training. That's really interesting. The cluster sets approach is really interesting to it because I'm thinking a couple of years ago, uh, a coach I knew in Italy said, I was asking him about an athlete I was coaching and he said, have them do two repetitions at 80, 90%. 20 second rest and then a third and she responded really well to this and I didn't I don't think I even realized it was cluster Um, but you would say try even maybe four or five or six yeah and you can play about with that rest period as well it it does depend on the exercise you know if you were doing clean and jerk it's very fatiguing yeah so you'd probably do one repetition of the clean and the jerk rest full 20 30 seconds go again Mm -hmm. if it's a power clean or a power snatch you can probably have slightly shorter rest periods Mm -hmm. If it's a clean or snatch, because you're catching full depth and having to squat back out of the hole, you probably need slightly longer rest periods yeah. because it's more fatiguing. You do more work. Um, and you can play about with that. You can introduce it progressively. Um, you don't have to use the same load. You could do one or two reps at a certain load. Then you can add a bit more load and then you can add a bit more or you can come back down. So you can almost do a wave loading approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it all depends on what you're really trying to get out of that athlete. Yeah. If you reverse that, if you do really high loads first and then go to slightly lighter loads, sometimes it, whether it's post-activation potentiation or post-activation performance enhancement, uh, or whether it is just the fact that the second load you have on the bar feels so much lighter than the first, even though it might only be, you know, 5% difference, Mm -hmm. you perform really well. And different athletes respond in different ways, but it's, it's something definitely worth playing about with a little bit and monitoring what happens um, and seeing how they how they find it and how they feel when they're performing it. Do you think this this might be the reason why some people respond so well to like on the minute lifts, or is that are we out of the zone of like what you consider sort of clustering? Because I know some athletes who will get in their own heads in snatching normally, but you do on a minute, and all of a sudden they can find a rhythm, and they they can have friends PR essentially doing on the minute stuff. Yeah. It's a similar sort of uh, approach to it, really. It's almost an extended cluster set. So rather than doing, you know, your, your set of six or however many reps you're going to perform, 
with a 20 or 30 second rest period between every two repetitions. Um, you're really just saying, well, okay, we need to get this volume in. So we want 15, 20 repetitions total. So you're going to do, you know, every minute on the minute, and yeah. it's going to take you 15 or 20 minutes. You're not going to fatigue. So it's going to give you the same principle. You shouldn't fatigue in that time. Um, you've got more than enough time for all energy substrates to um, rephosphorylate, etc. Your breathing should be under control within. The, it goes up a bit, um, especially if you put complexes or anything else in there. But if you're yeah. just doing a clean or a snatch, your breathing's elevated, but it's not out of control. And you can maintain that. And actually, you can tell what was good and bad about the previous repetition and you can tweak your technique. Mm -hmm. You can have a coach reinforce on it. You can again, do it with a partner. They can give you feedback. So it's a similar sort of thing that you're maintaining the ability to generate high forces, move at high velocities, ingrain a really good technique because what you don't want to do with something skilled like weightlifting is be doing too many repetitions while you are fatigued because your technique deteriorates. Yeah. That's clear. We see that every time somebody tries it. Um, and that's a really good time then to throw in some form of cluster or to do every minute on the minute, or it could be every 30 seconds if you push for time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, th those sorts of things work pretty effectively. So you mentioned working with soccer players, working with rugby players, right? And uh, one group might be very great at developing power, uh, the other group force and what you need to focus on. But say an athlete comes in and we see this often and they are bad at producing power and they don't produce a lot of force. <laughs> Where do you start all of the things being equal? Um, if all things are equal, obviously we need to make sure uh, if it was a weightlifter, we need to make sure that their technique's um, good, they're proficient at the technique. And the main thing then is we need to develop force. The, okay. You know, the, the foundation for everything you're doing is force. So as long as their technique's okay, we need to focus on force production capability. If they're very slight build and they haven't got much muscle mass, it's probably going to be worthwhile doing a, a phase of hypertrophy, a bit of muscular endurance, and really getting some mass on them because we are limited to some extent by the cross-sectional area of the muscles. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, look at any very good weightlifter. They're pretty well developed. Look at any good um, sprint cyclist and look at the size of, of, of their thighs there's something there telling us that mass is definitely a, a key component. Not that we should be training like a bodybuilder, mm -hmm. um, but also it gives us other added benefits. The time under tension uh, that you go through for that and the adaptations to the tendons, etc. It can have a protective effect. Um, and as long as we phase the training appropriately, so you have a period of sort of strength, endurance, hypertrophy type trainings to set some of that foundation, and then you focus on strength. But you may have somebody that's come in who is quite muscular but they've done bodybuilding style training. You know, it's all been hypertrophy training, but there's that same person you've just described. They don't move at very high velocities and they're not particularly strong, but they've got a lot of mass. Mm -hmm. That individual needs to just start, you know, converting that muscle fiber to um, all fast twitch muscle fibers, uh, uh, the ability to generate for high forces and high forces quickly. So they've got to focus on strength. Whereas if the person who's coming in is quite slight, we need to put more muscle mass on them first. But again, it, we've got to be cautious on how we do that. That's not then a case of saying, well, you know, we've opened up a textbook. It says, you know, 12, 15 repetitions for strength endurance or eight to 12 for hypertrophy. We'll do that. Let's throw that in for snatches or let's throw that in for a clean and jerk. No, mm -hmm. 
you're, you're not going to have any real load in there, their technique will break down. You can do it with some exercises, but you probably need to cluster them then. And I think that's an interesting concept of using cluster sets with novices. People always think of them as an advanced technique. I even use it sometimes with my students to get them used to giving each other feedback, to be time efficient so they don't fatigue and technique doesn't break down. Even something as simple as a deadlift, you give a beginner or, or a relative novice um, any version of a deadlift to perform for 15 reps. You won't see good technique beyond probably the first five or six repetitions, yeah. it starts to deteriorate. So if that's the case and you know their postural muscles, their spinal erectors, et cetera, fatiguing, we need to cluster it or we need to then say, well, we know that's a weakness. We now need to ingrain good technique. Uh, we need to um, increase the strength of those um, stabilizing muscles, etc. But mm -hmm. most of the time, it's, it will be a case of get them strong first mm -hmm. and go through phases of focusing on hypertrophy, strength. You, you're never going to lose all the aspects of high velocity because they're still going to be performing snatches, power snatches, jerks, cleans, etc., so we're still going to have some high velocity or relatively high velocity movements in there. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we've got to get them stronger, especially yeah. if they're a weightlifter or they want to become a weightlifter, because we know that is key for what they do. Um, it can be more difficult if you look at other team sports, because sometimes you've got a very limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. But that's when you need to assess and evaluate the athlete properly and identify, right, is it really force production that's the problem? Mm -hmm. Is it really movement velocity that's the problem? Because in a lot of sports, as much as, especially with something like rugby league and rugby union, the coaches would like them bigger. Mm -hmm. Because if you're bigger you're and you run at the same velocity, if you're going at the same speed and you weigh more, your momentum's greater, you're harder to stop. Yeah. You watch any rugby game, any football game, uh, um, and look at the collisions. If you've got somebody who's really big, who hits top speed, they're really hard to take down. Yeah. But trying to put mass on somebody while you're training for a team sport with high volumes of pitch, tactical, technical training, conditioning, et cetera, that's difficult. Yeah. Um, there's a really nice study by um, Dr. Dan Baker where he monitored a range, a group of the um, Brisbane Broncos while he was working for them. I think it's over a nine or 10 year period. And about the first five years of their career, they were putting on around about four to five kilos of lean tissue per year. Yeah. Which is pretty, you know, going from 18, 19 years of age, but that's yeah. pretty impressive. If you ask a, a rugby coach if they'd be happy with four or five kilos a year, they'd tell you no. But if you've then gone from the athlete who's 80 kilos at the age of 18 or 19, who, you know, by the age of 23 is up to 100 kilos, yeah. you've got a bit of a beast on the, on the rugby pitch there. And that's good. Um, but it's got to be that sort of long-term development of those individuals. And then mm -hmm. beyond that, it starts slowing down and why, you know, it could be a whole range of, of factors, whether it's age, whether it's the number of injuries they've picked up, the volume of training, whatever that could be. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a case of setting realistic goals for those individuals as well. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you just need to get them stronger because you'll yeah. probably get more bang for your buck and get them stronger quicker than you will put on a few kilos of lean tissue. Mm -hmm. And especially if there's somebody that needs to play the sport every time, you know, if they're one of your key players, um, you want your, your stars on the pitch. You don't want them mm -hmm. sat on the bench because you've just done some really high volume training <laughs> with them to make them more muscular for the next season. You want them playing that season, which makes yeah. it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, in the weightlifting perspective, I suppose it's a bit easier because you can then plan when am I going to compete? So where is my window for putting on some mass if I need to? Mm hmm.
You mentioned uh, force and velocity uh, and the idea that because you're still doing velocity training, the velocity is still there. I know that there's sometimes a concern in weightlifting that, oh, if you, if you get too strong, if you're focused only on force development, you will slow down, you'll lose velocity. Is this, is this at all supported? Do you see this? Or is this just, I don't a holdover, a kind of belief that is not seen anywhere? There's, if you focus purely on really high load strength training, you tend to find that movement velocities can reduce um, towards the end of that period of training. But it's probably due to the volume of training that you're performing. Okay. So it's probably, you know, cumulative fatigue over that four, six, eight week period of time you've been doing that type of training. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've just done a, a general strength phase into a max strength phase, the volumes of training are still pretty high. When you back off from that um, and almost do a taper like you would going into competition or you then emphasize the weightlifting exercises themselves more than the squatting or the deadlifting and that sort of stuff um, you tend to find there's a rebound effect um, and it, it's quite interesting because if you look at a lot of research for whatever reason they don't generally have a period of training then a period of sort of unloading and tapering so in the studies I've done, we've ended up with a week. Um, so you'll build up over three or four weeks, then you'll have a week mm -hmm. where they go through an unloading. We drop off the volumes by maybe you know, 40, 50%, still keep the, the intensity or the load there. And then we retest them. But actually, I know for some of those athletes, when they come back in one or two weeks after that, that's when they're at their peak. Mm -hmm. So there is a lag effect. Mm -hmm. And that tends to vary based on their training status as well and how strong they are and what else they might be doing. Mm -hmm. So if we've got uh, one of the studies we did, we had a whole range of different athletes within there. And some of them had really high volumes of training. So we had some rowers in there uh, who were out on the water every morning, 5.30, 6 a.m., rowing for whatever period of time. But the volumes of training were really high. Compare that to sort of collegiate soccer players who weren't doing a particularly high volume of training. And the rowers seemed to, just anecdotally from looking at what happened during the next phase of training they did with us, they seem to super compensate and get better a couple of weeks after the soccer players who've done lower volumes of training. And that would make sense. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes you'll, you might see a decrease in velocity or somebody might feel sluggish because they are fatigued. Mm -hmm. But actually, if we back off appropriately and then look at what happens to their performance um, and look at what actually happens when you go into a big competition and you, you back off, you taper for you know, anything from about one to four weeks, depending on the individual yeah. and what they're used to doing. And that's when you start performing at your best because some of the niggles, the aches and pains have gone, just the tightness somewhere is gone and you just move far more effectively and efficiently. So there sometimes is that decrease in velocity and sometimes, you know, your, your performances in certain lifts might drop slightly, especially mm -hmm. when it's really high velocity movements. So your power snatch might drop a little bit while you're doing some really high, high volume strength work. So, but that's not a problem because during that phase, the aim is to get stronger. Yeah. And then you should have a period of time afterwards where you focus more and then they, I need to train my athletes ability to use that extra force and that extra strength that they've developed. Mm -hmm. And then the volume should drop. Uh, so they should recover, they should supercompensate, and then you should see that adaptation. But I think the problem is some people think that right at the end of a four or six week block of training, that's when we should be at our best. Yeah. No, you've dug them into a hole at that point. They're pretty fatigued. <laughs> um, and actually, there's there's some good 
um, studies out there by uh, Professor Andy Fry looking at overtraining and overreaching, where they train people almost every day and they put them through a huge volume of training to push them into a hole and then watch what happens when they supercompensate. And your strength can keep going up during that time. Hmm. But if you look at rate of force development or the ability to produce force rapidly and things like jump performance, that drops. But give it a couple of weeks and you rebound. And that's where some people we use planned overreaching, where they'll put those really high volumes in and then back right off, knowing that three, four, five weeks later, you suddenly get fantastic performance. Hmm. And that happens sometimes just from programming the you know too high a volume in someone's training. It's really interesting because it points to, uh, you know, a lot of us like to look at studies, uh, but you're really highlighting the importance of study design, right? Because, you know, you a study gives you a slice into a particular period of time, and then it, it doesn't take into account, like you said, two weeks after that person might be in a totally different place, which is actually <coughs> yeah. very important for uh, figuring out what makes the most sense. Yeah, and the difficulty with that sometimes is in a team sport, we have that one week where we back off from training we create a taper or unloading week and then we retest but we can't stay unloaded for multiple weeks that would be ideal for research purposes but actually the reality is they've got to get back in the gym and start the next phase of training and so if you've got some data whether it's jump data or whatever it might be you're not going to be able to monitor max strength continually and you know even if you were lucky enough to be able to do something like an isometric mid-thigh pull or an isometric squat with them you're probably not going to get that more than once a week if you're lucky. So you may be able to then monitor with some athletes how that's changed and their ability to produce force rapidly might change. Most of the time it comes down to a jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily what we want, want to know for all of those um, different sports. Yeah. But that's unfortunately the reality and, and the sort of trade-off between we've got to be ecologically valid and do what happens in the natural environment but sometimes that leaves some of those questions unanswered. Mm-hmm. And other times, you know, with the overreaching and overtraining studies, you push them so hard that you want them to put their performance to drop. And it's quite scary sometimes what it can take, the volume of training that it can take to create that. Um, but when then you see with most people, they rebound really well afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, that, that, that is a sort of dilemma between, well, this would be ideal for this study. Are we ever going to be able to do it with professional athletes? Probably not. Yeah. Okay, can we do it with collegiate athletes? Yes, probably. But are they as well trained? So will yeah. they respond in the same way? And that, that again, is a bit of a problem because you tend to get better um, recovery from better trained athletes and longer durations of recovery in less well-trained athletes. But also with collegiate athletes, if they're not as well-trained, and some of them are phenomenally well-trained, but mm-hmm. if they're not as well-trained, you're expecting a large improvement in performance. If you're looking at, you know, some of the top weightlifters in the US, as an example, you're not going to see dramatic increases in strength in a short period of time. Um, You look at most training studies, they're eight, 12 weeks. And we're probably going to be setting goals for your athlete for six, 12 months and minimum, Mm -hmm. if not four years ready for the next Olympics. Um, And that might be, we want, you know, you imagine for some of your top athletes, if you could put 10 kilos on their squat each year, between Olympic cycles, that's a huge improvement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then when you bring that down to an eight-week study, what are we really going to see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that's interesting in a lot of this research, as I was going through it, um, 
I realized so much power clean research, and this is probably true of strength research in general, is only focused on male collegiate athletes or professional athletes. And a number of your studies were some of the few studies, and I think one or two were in your dissertation, that also worked with female uh, collegiate athletes. What are some of the differences, if there are differences, that you see in training female athletes specifically for either strength or power and either in relation to the power clean or if there are other aspects you want to touch on? Well, I think if you just look at the difference between sexes in general, that's and they're referred to as sex differences. Normally, most of them aren't sex differences. Uh, there's a couple of really nice um, editorials and papers published by Dr. Sophia Nymphius about this, where most of the studies don't take into account relative strength. So females generally don't perform as well as males in most studies because they're weaker. I'm not saying females are weaker than males, but in those studies, when you compare them, they generally are. If you if you strength match them, and there's a really nice study by um, Nymphius, I think it's also Jeff McBride and, and a few other people, where they strength matched males and females and then find that most of those other differences were eliminated. Can you do, sorry, can you define strength matching people across uh, the sexes? So literally just looking at their relative strength. So okay. taking the strength measure. So if it was a one RM or if it's an isometric squat or an isometric mid-thigh pull, taking their peak forces or their one RM and then dividing it by their body mass. Um, so it's relative to their mass. Gotcha. Because obviously for males and females, <laughs> In most sports, if you compare rugby, soccer, whatever the sport might be, uh, females are smaller than the males. So mm-hmm. the 1RM will look lower. But when you divide it by their body mass, um, sometimes they're comparable. And if we compare people of an equal strength level, um, so their relative strength, then their performances come out quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um but most people haven't actually done that. And I know that the one, uh, one of my studies where we compared males and females, and it was only the, the acute um, effect of loading. So uh, mid-thigh pulls from 40% up to 140% of 1RM power clean. The trends were exactly the same between males and females. The highest velocity was at 40%. The lowest velocity was at 140% of 1RM. Hmm. Not surprising. Um, the highest forces were at 140% and the lowest forces were at 40%. Mm-hmm. And power ended up occurring, uh, peaking somewhere in the middle. What we did find, though, is the, the rate of decline in velocity was much greater in males compared to the females. And there's a few reasons it could be. It could be the fact that the males, if you look at their average 1RM, um, especially relative to their body weight, was much higher than the females. Technically, the females definitely weren't as good. So was it a true 1RM? Or, you know, as you see, especially with a power clean, sometimes people will perform the full pulling phase, get to the top and pause mm-hmm. and second guess themselves, not try and drop under the bar and catch. And once they've done that a few times, while well, they're fatigued, they've completely psyched themselves out. So they're not going to get a heavier load that day anyway. So technically that's a 1RM. But is it yeah. really? Were they limited just because technically they're not as good? Um, and I think that's that's the the key thing to look at but that's not a sex difference that's the fact that the males were more experienced than the females and the males were stronger than the females if we had comparable data um between males and females that were had a similar sort of training background similar relative strength level you probably find there's not much of a difference uh, there's a couple of studies by garhammer where they compared at the um world weightlifting championships males and females uh, but you had males who had been competing for years and the first female weightlifting championship ever 
Yeah. Um, so again, you've got a big difference there. You've got people that have been competing for however long they've been competing for, mm-hmm. and then females attending the first ever um, world weightlifting championship mm-hmm. for women. So their strength levels aren't going to be as high. It's wouldn't have been classed as professional, but they certainly wouldn't be as professional at that point. They wouldn't be as strong. Mm-hmm. If you compared them now, you'd probably see them much closer together uh, and much less differences. What is interesting with training athletes, though, using weightlifting variations, technically, you tend to find that females don't have the big ego problem that the males have and keep wanting to put more weight on our bar. They want to get better. They want to become as good technically as they can. Whereas the males just want to put more weight on the bar mm-hmm. early on when they're lifting. Um, but yeah, when, when you look at some of the studies that have been done in the past, they're not really fair to compare the males and the females because they're not, they're not of a similar um, strength level and they're not of a similar training age or technical ability. If you could collect that data at uh, world championships now, the Olympics, etc., um, and then scale them based on um, their relative force production capabilities, you'd probably find that, they're pretty, probably pretty similar because at that level, they're very, very strong. Male or female, they're yeah. phenomenally strong. There, there is some more recent research. It's it, you know, Garhammer, you've mentioned his name yeah. a few times, and he's he's somebody who had, did, I think, a lot of the foundational research, at least for Olympic weightlifting in the yep. West. Um, but yeah, you know, when you when you look at his or others' research from the late 1980s or the 90s in women's weightlifting, it's a very different world. And it looks like now, yeah, I mean, just I'm thinking of one in terms of bar velocity that was done a couple of years ago. Uh, and they're very similar. Uh, I mean, I think if I were to look at the data blindly, I wouldn't be able to tell whether I don't think anyone would be able to tell, right? Like yeah. bar velocity, it, there's sort of a range. It varies from athlete to athlete, but I didn't see any significant trends between male or female athletes. I, you, know, you shouldn't quote me on that, certainly, but they were much more in line with what we were seeing in only male athletes a few decades ago. Yeah. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you think about it, you've got to displace that bar to its maximum height. So you need to get it moving at as high a velocity as possible. Yeah. There's a certain velocity you'll hit, which if you're below that, the bar doesn't have enough momentum. So when you try and drop under the bar, it already starts coming back down. What you really want is it to continue just to go a little bit more to give you time to get under the bar. Mm-hmm. If that's dropping at the same rate that you drop, you'll never get under it. You need to <laughs> drop faster than the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so there will be a certain threshold that if you're not achieving the, either the displacement or the velocity or both, you're going to fail the lift. So as lifters become more and more proficient, you will see um, that the velocities are similar. Even if you look across weight categories, there's yeah. a certain velocity that you're hitting, which um, below that, you generally fail the lift unless you are, you know, technically an absolute master mm-hmm. and you are catching right at the peak displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I put out a call for some questions from uh, some of the people who support uh, All Things Jam. And I'm just wondering if we can start looking through some of those right now, because some, yeah, some of them I think you've touched on. Uh, but some of them not yet. And so the first one is kind of a broader one, but if you could discuss the relationship of the power clean to other lifts, like the full clean, a back squat or front squat, uh, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, um, that's a really interesting one because if you look at it in weightlifters and look at back at some of the, the sort of older research, there are some figures that people all put about, you know, in terms of, you need to be able to squat X amount um, more, you know, 30% more on a back squat to 
to be able to clean it or maybe 15 to 20% more on, on a front squat, uh, et cetera. That's if you're technically very proficient. I totally buy that. But, you know, I see certainly with team sport athletes, you'll see some, I've seen guys that have got, you know, a 250, 300 kilo back squat and their power clean is just over a hundred kilos <laughs> because technically they're not that good and they, they're not using the forces efficiently or effectively. So, yeah, there definitely is that aspect to it and they should be close. And that's one where actually, again, I've, I've seen some competitive weightlifters in the UK who aren't high level, but some of them who are power cleaning the same weight they front or sorry, cleaning the same weight they front squat. Yeah. Now, for me, that means technically they're really good, but they just need to get stronger. Mm. The limiting factor is their strength at that point. Whereas others, if there's a big discrepancy, we need to start thinking, well, okay, if you can front squat, 30 or 40 percent more than you can power than you can clean we really need to start getting you working on getting the correct posture when you're cleaning why are you failing in that clean are you not dropping under it quick enough is your posture incorrect so the bar's pulling you forwards when you receive the bar are you pulling the bar too high and then it's crashing down on you mm -hmm. so you know the, the peak displacement of the bar could be six inches greater than the point that you catch it that's probably a, a bit of an issue because gravity then has a bit of an effect on it for a prolonged period of time and that's going to hurt <laughs> so i think it is really useful to look at um some of those metrics but at the same time um you can look at those ratios but you need to watch the athlete performing the lifts and yeah. identifying well is this because you know it is there a big discrepancy because they're not technically proficient or actually is there no minimal discrepancy? And the problem is that they just need to get stronger. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, I don't think you'll ever find a specific um, ratio or threshold between lifts and that sort of those relationships, because it will vary so much based on their technical proficiency. Yeah. Uh, I do think sometimes certainly looking at lower level athletes, whether they're weightlifters or team sport athletes, their ability to pull the bar off the floor can be a limiting factor. Okay. Getting the bar, you know, to the sort of the height of the patella to the kneecap um, with good technique and good posture tends to be um, with lower level people a, a bit of a problem. And that is something we try and ingrain with our students or sometimes with the athletes to try and make sure they're practicing just doing that first pull, just pulling yeah. the bar to the knee with good posture, maintaining that, you know, the, the correct spinal alignment holding it in that position and even as, as you'll see some of the weightlifters doing on some of the the videos that you you guys um put up you know where they will do a first pull to the knee they hold it there they pause maybe yeah. three or four yeah. seconds and then go from there they're brilliant drills because they really ingrained technique but that is more of a technical drill something to develop postural strength mm -hmm. um than actually you know trying to make them better at, at a clean or a snatch or whatever they're doing but those drills are really, really useful if you see technique breaking down. So it's, I would never go with anything to say, right, you need to be hitting these ratios or these thresholds on one lift compared to another, because you've really got to watch as a coach and see, well, what's causing that issue? Mm -hmm. Or why is it that that athlete can actually front, can, can front squat the same load that they're cleaning? They should be lifting a lot more. Yeah. So what is it about that individual? Mm -hmm. And how do they compare to that other athlete that's the complete reverse? Mm -hmm. That's front squatting 50% more than they're performing on a clean. So what is different about their technique on the squat and on the clean? Um, and then sort of break it all down from there. You know, speaking of going from the floor to it's funny because my, my original coach used to say, 
the minute it left the floor, when I was lifting, the minute the bar left the floor, he knew if I was going to make it or miss it. And some of that I'm sure was just him, you know, bragging a little bit. But I, when I started coaching, I realized, oh yeah, that first instant from the floor, uh, you can very often tell. And you see this in athletes too, I imagine, where the power, not the power, but the lifts from the hang will be better than from the floor because you take out what is arguably the hardest part of the lift for beginners. Um, I'm going to combine sort of a couple of questions here. So, you know, one individual wanted to know what ratio of training for the clean should be devoted to the power clean. And I guess a related question is if we never did power cleans, if we only did regular pulls or did pulls and regular cleans, would anybody know? Uh, so sort of, yeah, taking two of those, what do you think? Yeah, I think, um, in terms of what percentage, it depends where you are in your training cycle. Uh, and it depends on your overall goal. If you're wanting to focus on movement velocity, <clears throat> the power clean is going to be a better option because you have to move at a higher velocity to displace the bar high enough to catch it at that, at that um, higher height. If you're really focusing on force production, um, then the clean is going to be better because you can lift a heavier load. Mm-hmm. Or at some points, just pulling variations, You know, just a, a clean pull from the floor, from the knee, from mid-thigh, wherever it might be allows you to use a heavier load so it really depends where you are in your training cycle as you're coming up to competition in team sports especially it's probably easier to get rid of some of that displacement because you want them to peak so we might program for a team sport um, a couple of days after they've competed they might do a clean maybe 48 hours before competition that might be a hang power clean because then you're not pulling from the floor, you're not catching in a full depth squat, so the total amount of work you perform is less. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily take into account when they're looking at um, planning a training program and trying to decrease the volume of work, whether it's between days or whether it's at the end of a training cycle, is the displacement isn't always factored in. But if you think, if we went something like a uh, power clean from mid-thigh, the actual range of motion that you go through is pretty minimal um, mm-hmm. from the ankle, knee and hip. And then you catch in a shallow squat position and then you drop it on the floor or you drop it onto technique boxes and then you pick it back up from there and go again. Whereas if we're doing the clean, you start from the floor, you've probably got an extra meter of displacement to get it to mid thigh. Then you catch in a full depth squat and then you've got to do a full squat out of the hole. So the amount of work you have to do is so much larger yeah. So I think in terms of doing the clean and the power clean, <clears throat> if you're running up to competition as a weightlifter, you need to be focusing more on the clean because that's what you're going to do in competition. Mm-hmm. If you're focusing on other sports, you might not do that. You might actually, close to competition, focus more on the power clean because you've got to move at that higher velocity and the total amount of work reduces. Mm-hmm. And again, that might not be a power clean from the floor. It could be from the knee. It could be off blocks or however you want to do it so that they minimize the displacement. But you've still got that really sort of intent for rapid application of force mm-hmm. without doing too much extra work. So you don't end up fatigued. Almost going back to your question earlier about, you know, some people find that the velocity drops when they're doing that high sort of um, high load strength training. Again, if you at that point you're doing full depth squats, um, which is great, and yes, you should definitely be doing a lot, a lot of full depth squats for weightlifting. It's essential for anyone else. If you've got the range of motion, start squatting to a proper, proper depth. Um, 
but that actually means you do more work mm -hmm. yeah. because you've got a much bigger range of motion you're going through. So you've really got to factor those things in. And then, yeah, it, it really is down to what your key focus is with that period of, of training. Is it force? Is it velocity? Do we want to create some form of unloading and taper? In which case, let's reduce the displacement that they have to do. Uh, or, you know, if it's essential with a weightlifter, you don't reduce displacement, but we reduce the number of uh, sets and repetitions they're performing on the run up to competition. So the volume drops that way. Mm -hmm. Talking about displacement is making me think now too of, uh, and this term is problematic, but people talk about Bulgarian training, let's say, which is a loaded term, uh, but let's just use it as a shorthand for system of training where people did lots of really uh, maximal or near maximal attempts. And every other day, uh, they would often be doing power lifts. And I had always assumed, well, uh, the benefit there is, of course, you're developing strength and explosiveness. But and maybe this went to the thinking, although I've never heard it, I imagine part of the benefit is also, like you said, less displacement. And so it's less work. Right. So you just, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, let's say you're doing those maximal full lifts Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you're only doing the power lifts. And so you're actually doing even if you're still going to maximal weights, you're doing less work. Correct. You're sort of recovering yeah. in some way. Yeah, you're doing less work. The loads have to be lighter. Mm -hmm. um, you're not catching that full depth position. So actually the total volume of work is likely to reduce substantially on those days in between. But you're mm -hmm. still ingraining that that the propulsive phase yeah. from the floor to that full extension is the mm -hmm. same. So yeah. you're still developing that, but without inducing any additional fatigue. Mm -hmm. Um how strong, so another question, how strong is the correlation between a power clean one rep max and a clean one rep max for different athletes? Have you found any really strong? I mean, I know we have in weightlifting kind of ideas about what those correlations yeah. are. And you just talked about, you know, squat ratio. I mean, weightlifters just love ratios, whether they're accurate or not. But uh, have you found anything on those relationships? With, with weightlifters, they're brilliant. They're very, very strong correlations because technically they're so good. Yeah. They are nowhere near as good in team sport athletes uh, because you generally find that they will focus more on the power variations mm -hmm. and they're nowhere near as good at the, the full variations. So, you know, you will find some athletes that can clean and power clean with great technique, no problem at all. And actually you look and think if you dedicated your time, you could become a half decent weightlifter. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them might even go on and do that once they retire from their sport. But <laughs> because they spend so much more time performing power variations, there's nowhere near as good a correlation as you would like to think there would be because most yeah. of them aren't competent or confident mm -hmm. at catching in that full depth position. Uh, so in general, the, the ratios are um, all over the place. They're generally better if you've got a really good sort of academy athlete development setup um, within a rugby league, rugby union, or sometimes even um, soccer teams where they focused on that and they've maybe taken them from the age of nine or 10, starting doing some weightlifting variations right the way through. And they're not focusing on let's max out, let's get as big as we can, let's get as strong as we can. It, it really is long-term athlete development. Let's develop this athlete so that they are a very good um, athlete. They can perform all the exercises we want them to perform. Once they become a little bit older, more mature, we can really then focus on either increase in mass, increase in strength. And as a byproduct, they're strong, powerful athletes anyway. Yeah. Because they've become competent at all those lifts. 
there you tend to find some okay correlations between between the the full variations and the power variations but you te don't tend to get that within uh, squads of senior athletes i would imagine it you you'd probably get a better idea with, with collegiate athletes in the us who are in environments where they have the facilities to do it you know some of the stuff that my students are always shocked at the high school facilities that you'll see um, in the US where they'll come into our facility where we've got um, 10 lifting platforms and we've probably got one of the best facility, best equipped facilities in the country. Uh, you can probably count on, um, on your fingers and toes the number of facilities that are as well equipped as our facility, which is really just for teaching and research. Um, you can probably count the, the, the number of others that are to that standard around the country. It's wow. getting better, mm -hmm. but it means that actually in the, in the UK, a lot of people don't get exposed to some of these exercises, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is quite concerning. You can go into some professional setups and look and say, well, where do you train then? And they're like, this, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, you know, they do phenomenally well off the back of it. Um, and it's really nice sometimes to be in that sort of spit and sawdust environment where you think, well, there's no room to clean here because you have to be good at cleaning or snatching because you've only got, you know, yeah. <laughs> a, a meter of space to be able to, to do it. So if you get any excessive anterior posterior movement, you, you've just bounced the bar off something. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny. Yeah, it definitely it makes you stronger too i think because it's like well i've got to control this you might not be able to drive. i mean i remember when i first started yeah nobody had bumper plates nobody had real bars or a handful of gyms and so i had to lower every single weight and yeah if it was in front of me i was dropping it on some guy bench pressing if it was behind me i was in a mirror so it it makes you strong i think yeah definitely you. Um, a couple of technique questions here uh, that I wonder if you could comment on. One, uh, actually, wow, a few people are curious. So one is height, right? People are wondering about uh, should, should we be catching a power clean as high as possible? Uh, should we be emphasizing catching it lower, closer to, let's say, 90 degrees? Um, the other has to do with foot width, uh, wider versus uh, closer to, let's say, a full clean. And uh, the other one has to do with the type of contact we see in the, in the hips or in the thigh, let's say. There's some athletes who have a very aggressive hit, uh, almost seem to propel the bar, and others where it's a much lighter brush. And you, it's almost, inaud I mean, some athletes you can actually hear the bar, uh, and some athletes it's, it's inaudible, essentially. So have you seen anything? Do you have thoughts on that? And maybe it varies for sport to sport. Yeah, I think if you if you compare a power clean in most athletes, most sort of team sport athletes compared to a power clean in a weightlifter, the weightlifter is definitely catching lower and they're more confident and competent at catching around that sort of 90 degree knee angle um, or slightly lower than that even. And I think I don't think you should necessarily be coaching people to catch higher or lower. That's determined by the load. So if we put, you know, 70% of our of the your 1RM power clean on the bar, you're going you can catch that pretty much stood upright. You don't mm -hmm. need to drop. But as you go to 80% and 90%, you can't displace the bar as high. So you have to start catching lower and lower. Um, and what we don't want to do is give them a light a light load, make them drop down to 90 degrees to catch, but actually the bar's coming up above them or mm -hmm. they don't put in the intent. They're going through the motions with it because if they're only going through the motions, they're not trying to apply as much force as they can, as rapidly as they can. 
because they know they don't have to. Mm -hmm. So personally, if I'm coaching the power variations, it will be, you know, drop to a shallow squat position, which allows you to catch that bar near its peak displacement. You really don't want them, you know, underneath the bar waiting for it to drop onto them. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, we've probably all done it numerous times, especially with a snatch. You get a really good pull on the bar and it almost feels like it's going to dislocate your shoulder because you're <laughs> dropping down and the bar's still going up. Yep. You, you definitely want to avoid that. And normally happening on the warm up sets where you get a bit overexcited. So I think with that, it's really determined by load. And as you become more proficient at lifting, you naturally will select the depth that you need to squat to to, to receive that bar. And it should be um, pretty intuitive then. Yes, you definitely need to be coaching some people to drop. I've certainly seen um, some athletes in the UK who are catching pretty much stood upright. And then instead mm -hmm. of flexing ankle, knee and hip to catch, they end up leaning backwards. Hmm. And that's really not a good posture to get into. Um, they've emphasized so much full extension that then they don't flex to catch. So for them, we need to go back to the drawing board. We need to build in some drills to get them better at catching. Um, but unfortunately, you do see that sometimes in terms of foot placement personally i would stick with the same sort of foot placement that you would go with if you're catching full depth if you're doing the clean or you're doing the snatch because that will keep you strong in those sort of postures why go wider that there's yeah. no rationale for going wider that allows you to decrease your the height of your central mass or your shoulders where you're receiving the bar but that should really be from flexing hip knee and ankle mm -hmm. So I don't see any point in going much wider. And actually, if, if you're not used to it, you're probably going to get a bit of groin strain after a while. <laughs> um, so probably best to avoid it. In terms of the, you know, making contact with the bar on the thighs, I would suggest that it should be a light brush. Um, if you're making enough contact to displace the bar horizontally, mm -hmm. there's an issue. That's going to make it so much harder to catch. And you're either going to have to extend more at the top of the movement to pull it back towards you, um, or you're going to have to hop forwards and catch it. Now, don't get me wrong. If someone does that on the odd repetition, or even in competition, as long as they catch it, that's fine. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Um, and there will be some error. And you see that when you, you know, you can watch the highest level of competition and you will see some variation in some lifters. Uh, but really, it should be a, a, a brush because we don't want... We don't want horizontal displacement. We're trying to displace the bar as, as high vertically as we can. And if you watch the natural movement of the barbell um, and you watch that bar path, it is that sort of slight S shape that ends up occurring. So it normally comes back towards you. It does move away from you very slightly um, as you go through that full extension phase and then it comes back towards you. But if we exaggerate the horizontal displacement too much from bouncing it off the thighs, you're going to end up with an issue. And I know that some people almost coach that to make sure people get full hip extension. Yeah. Personally, I would suggest there's better ways of creating full hip extension. Even if that is doing um, some pulling variations or almost doing a complex. So do a clean pull, get right up to that full extended position, drop the bar or lower the bar back to the floor and then do a clean afterwards or a snatch afterwards. Because you've just done that full extension, it helps ingrain that movement pattern. Um, but again, if you've got somebody who is very, very good, you know, a weightlifter who's technically proficient, you shouldn't then need that at that stage. Yeah. Earlier on is when you see people throwing in different drills to get the hips through the movement. Yeah. 
but bouncing it off the fire is probably not the way to go. Um, and the, there's a few studies out there where they look at bar path and what is ideal or optimal and too much um, forward displacement of the bar uh, generally results in a failed lift. Mm-hmm. Unless you do hop forwards to catch it. Yeah, but then you've yeah. got your momentum and the momentum of the bar going forward. So it's probably best not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the power clean for developing uh, primarily the clean? But actually, if you have thoughts on developing the snatch too, my coach used to say that the power clean, he saw a, a good relationship between the power clean and the snatch. And even went so far, I think, as to a lot of times when he programmed, he saw it as redundant to program power cleans on the same day as snatch pulls because he felt they were emphasizing the same thing. So I'm curious to know if you have thoughts on the relationship between power clean and training the clean. I know that in weightlifting, I have heard from great coaches that the power clean is not to be emphasized for cleans. And I've also heard great coaches say the power clean is great for teaching and coaching the clean. Um, I really like them. Uh, I like using them on myself. I like using them with other athletes. I just like the power lifts in general, depending on the athlete. But you obviously have a different uh, set of resources and knowledge and data that you could share. I, I like the um, thought that you've just described there from your um, from your coach of using the power clean to help with the snatch. Because if you think about the displacement of the barbell in a power clean, it probably isn't much different to the displacement of the barbell during a snatch. So that's, I've never thought about it from that perspective before, but as you were describing that, that sort of makes sense if you look at how high the bar has to displace. So yeah, if you were doing snatch pulls, would you need to do power cleans on the same day? Because you might be doing them with the same load. So if you're performing the same movement pattern for the lower body Mm -hmm. um, with the same load, it probably is redundant at that point. but again, then that means if that is the case, and it'd be nice to look at the displacements which occur in a power clean compared to a snatch and see how similar they are. I suppose that the one thing to try and avoid, especially in weightlifters, is doing too much of the power variations yeah. if they're not um, as confident, competent, and stable in that catch position with the clean and the snatch because that's ultimately your end goal. That's what you're doing as a weightlifter. That means that you win or lose. So you really need to get people up to the point where they're as good at receiving the bar in that position. So certainly with beginners, you'd probably want to have more time getting into that full depth position to to catch and receive the bar. But again, very early on, you might just be focusing more on getting them to fully extend and get through that movement and that pull which ultimately the pull is the phase which will result in you displacing the bar as high as you can get it. That has to be good. Yeah. If that's wrong, your catch and the way you receive the bar is not going to be any good. As an example, with with our, our students when we're teaching them, and some of them have never ever you know touched a barbell sometimes, which might seem strange coming into a sports science sort of environment to study, and they've never lifted a barbell, but that happens. So mm-hmm. you end up with some students that come in who have lifted, some who have never done anything something might compete in weightlifting but then they know what it should look like so we'll get them to the the weightlifters to try and coach the total novice and you know it sort of it baffles them that these people can't get into these postures and even then they'll look at well this went wrong so Mm -hmm. the bar went forwards so you did this wrong but most of them don't break it down to as you described earlier and 
That was because the, your start position before you even lifted the bar off the floor was incorrect. Your hips were too high or your hips were too low. Um, or when you started, your hips lifted and your trunk didn't move. So the bar naturally moved away from you because mm -hmm. the, your weight went forwards towards your toes or to the midfoot rather than staying evenly distributed or towards the heels. So that's what caused you to fail the lift. Uh, so I think it's really interesting that if you can get people to perform the, the, the propulsive phase, so the pull of the lifts with good technique, that makes it easier to get into that catch position and receive it. But ultimately, for a weightlifter, they have to go full depth to catch it because the deeper we can get into that squat position to receive the bar, the lower the displacement of the barbell for us to be able to make a successful lift. If you're limited with range of motion, uh, then you've immediately got to displace the bar to, to a higher percentage of your, your height. So I think it's it really is one of those ones where we've got to identify with the athlete, what do they need to work on? Yeah. Do they really need to be working on that pulling phase? Um, but going back to what you, you mentioned about your coach, if the load is the same and the displacement is similar, will we get much extra from performing a power clean to a snatch? Mm -hmm. Although I suppose the nice thing is when you're doing it with that snatch grip as well, um, actually stabilizing through the shoulders, through the upper back, etc., it's completely different mm -hmm. um, to what you do with a clean grip. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really about evaluating your athlete and what's going to be the most beneficial for them in that environment. And not, you know, I think that's why you get the different schools of thought that you should do this or you shouldn't do this is it depends on the athletes they've got. And again, as long as we create that progressive overload, they will adapt and get better. But what we also need to consider with weightlifting is it's such a highly skilled task that you need to be able to perform with a high level of strength, a fantastic mobility um, and stability that, we've really got to make sure that we're not just focusing on strength development um, or the ability to express that, but then being technically proficient because otherwise you can get somebody who's phenomenally strong um, and very gifted in terms of strength. But if they're not technically as good, they're not going to be as successful. They're going to fail more lifts, et cetera. And that causes all sorts of problems as well. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of strength and, and technique, some of your research has been on um, not just the power clean variation, but also uh, the pull variations of the clean, right? Yeah. I imagine it depends, but uh, do, are you aware of specific cases? And this might, you might have already studied this and I just haven't have overlooked it, but where you would say, you know what? A pull is just much better. Just forget about the power clean and the pull. Here we can say for this athlete or for this for this aspect of weightlifting, for this sport, just do the pull. Don't even think about power cleaner variations. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. If you're looking at what do they need to term in terms of, uh, what do they need to train in terms of either force or velocity? If you're doing a pulling variation, we can go above our 1RM. So we can use heavier loads. So to do that for some of your training, to really emphasize force production, to emphasize postural strength and control when you're um, pulling a really heavy load off the bar. You know, if, if you're cleaning or snatching a certain load at the moment, but when you take a load 5% heavier off the floor, it feels heavy. Mm. You're probably not going to have a good chance at, at catching that, 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 um, that, that load or even really putting in the maximal intent um, to do the propulsive phase. There's going to be doubt in your mind. So if you're used to pulling really high loads off the floor, even if it is just that first pull, the pull to the knee, 
um, is a great way. And I've done it personally, and I'm not a competitive weightlifter, but I've done it just to improve my own performance where I'll do really heavy pulls to the knee. And then actually that's left me feeling confident. And then I might try a, a load that I wouldn't normally lift and it can fly up then because you felt strong in that position. Mm. Actually doing it for a period of training is a really good way of, of enhancing that, that strength. No one's looked at just the first pull itself or, um, or any of those aspects, but I do think there's a huge amount of benefit in, in that task. And then if we're really focusing on force production, the pulls are great. But again, if it's a weightlifter, they still need to do some of those catching variations and they still need to do them, some of them full depth, some of them possibly in a power position. If we're looking at movement velocity for other sports, not for weightlifting, because the velocity isn't that high, even if it is a power clean. For other sports, if we're really looking at velocity, then we can go with things like a, a high pull, which I know some people in weightlifting circles love and some mm -hmm. hate. Um, with rugby players, I generally don't do it because they are so strong in their upper body, it becomes an upper body exercise and not a lower body exercise. But with some athletes, it's a really good way of doing a high, uh, any form of high pull because you've got to get that bar traveling up on its own. Um, or even some of the research that Dr. Tim Sukumel has done with a jump shrug. And you could argue, is that a jumping variation or a weightlifting derivative? But to start with a bar in your hands, hinge down to the knee and then rapidly um, go through that transition and that sort of triple extension. And rather than having a phase where you start to decelerate so you can drop under the bar and catch it, you accelerate through a greater portion of the range of motion. So that's really useful for some sports. Probably not ever going to be used in weightlifters, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think the, the pulling side of it is is really, really effective if used at the right time and used for the right purposes, but never to the point that you would exclude some of the um, some of the other variations. When you're looking at it from a coaching perspective, I know some people hate the pulling variations because they'll say, well, the athlete doesn't put in intent. Well, if they're not putting in intent, don't give it to them. Mm -hmm. But there are others, especially with, with team sport athletes and individual athletes that when they do a clean or a power clean, they don't finish the pull. They get mm -hmm. part of the way through the range of motion. They're so conscious of dropping under the bar, whether it's a power clean or power snatch, clean or snatch. And you watch them and their hips aren't fully extended. The knees are nowhere near full extension. And you just think you've just missed out on that main part. You know, I've seen people that get to mid thigh and then drop under the bar. Mm -hmm. and you're like, you've just missed the part that gives us the most power. What are you doing? So in that situation, a pull might be better, but that's down to you as a coach to identify what the limiting factor is. And again, sometimes with that, actually stuff that we haven't researched is what happens if we do a pull followed by a clean or a pull followed by a snatch or a pull immediately followed by a power clean or power snatch? Because again, are you then ingraining that full extension motion? And I know that from coaching novice athletes or even some relatively well-trained athletes and just focus on on their technical ability putting in one or two repetitions of a pull mm -hmm. whether it's from the floor from the knee from mid thigh wherever it might be followed by a catching variation is a really good way of getting them through that full extension but there are others where you can do that and especially if you assess barbell velocity the pull you look at it the barbell velocity is low when they catch it's really high so you know they're not putting maximum intent. You can normally see that. It's normally very obvious. So you don't even need any of these velocity-based um, training devices to be able to identify it with some athletes. In that situation, if they're not putting max intent, you wouldn't bother with a pull. It's, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. But with other athletes, like I said, if they're not finishing the pull, um, 
there's almost no point doing a, a clean or a power clean because they're not getting the real benefit out of that. Yeah. Unless you can put more load on the bar, which forces them to do that. But again, sometimes you put more load on the bar, they just fail the lift mm-hmm. because they're not, not finishing the pull. So it's really down to you as a coach to say, right, what does this athlete need? And you'll see it across a group of athletes where some pulls are brilliant for them and they put in max intent and others that it is just, they go through the motion and you just think that that's a waste of time. Yeah. We're not going to do that with them anymore, unless you can find a way of motivating them. Unless it is, you know, we can put a, a, a velocity based training device to monitor um, the barbell velocity and get them to compete with others. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It sounds like you've, uh, in the past few minutes, identified a couple of areas where, despite decades of research in weightlifting, there is not a lot of research, one of which is the first pull, which I guess people have focused on the second pull to the exclusion of the first pull, it sounds like you're saying. And also um, compound movements where, like you said, I mean, I love programming, especially for beginner athletes, a snatch pull and a snatch, for example, or a snatch pull and a power clean to try and ingrain that finish the pull uh, aspect of the lift. But uh, it's something that I guess a lot of us are using intuitively, but as you say, is not really studied. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think with some of it, you know, the first pull would be great to study, but what will it give to most athletes? It yeah. will give them sort of that <laughs> postural strength, that integrity, the ability to perform that phase really well. Um, but for most athletes, it's not going to improve anything they do later on. Whereas we know that if we do something like the mid thigh pulls or pulls from the knee, hang pulls, we get a really, you get a lot of bang for your buck. You get high forces, high velocities. We can put that in their training program. It will enhance performance. Whereas just by doing the first pull, it's almost like an assistance exercise. It's going to make you better at getting the bar off the floor to assist with that full movement. Um, And it will, you know, certainly your spinal erectors, et cetera, are going to get uh, some overload from that. And they will um, develop in probably hypertrophy, get much stronger, et cetera, which is great. Is that ultimately going to improve their vertical jump, their sprint performance, et cetera? No, it's probably not. For weightlifters, it would be great to see if you actually went through a a focused period of heavy pulls to the knee. Just doing that first pull, not at the exclusion of anything else, but throwing in some of that um, in your training program and then monitoring what happens later on, uh, maybe four, six, eight weeks later. Do they actually get better? Yeah. Do they improve their one RMs in the power clean or the or the clean or the the, the snatch, etc.? Because they've got such a, a a strong, for want of a better phrase, such a strong first pull where posturally it's as good as it can. But you know, if you've mm-hmm. got a heavy load and you do the first pull and the weight comes forwards yeah. rather than slightly back towards you, that just pulls you over. You know, as soon as that's happening, which is probably why your coach said, I can tell when you take the bar off the floor, if it's going to go wrong, because if that Mm -hmm. starts going forwards, you're probably not catching it, especially with a snatch. Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be an area to look at it. Does it work if we program that a period of very heavy first pulls, very heavy clean pulls with weightlifters? Does that improve their performance in the full lift? Uh, But for team sport athletes, there probably isn't the same sort of utility. You probably yeah. just say, well, why don't we just get them deadlifting? <laughs> yeah. Which is a different movement, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned this earlier, but uh, in my case as well, when my coach was programming for me, he would very often write a fair amount of those heavy pulls to the knee, especially in the snatch. And I always felt a difference after a few weeks of that. And, you know, the, the 
way the weight felt off the floor was very different and it would be forward less um, and it would make me more successful at those higher percentages, 90, 95 plus percent. Interestingly for me, pulls, uh, snatch pulls at least, did not seem to improve things. It might have even made things worse. I think because I was probably somebody like you mentioned who just didn't put the effort into snatch pulls or maybe technically didn't have the, the ability to do so or the motivation wasn't there. But with a pull to the knee, it did ca- seem to carry over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's probably because the pull to the knee, you can use, you know, really heavy loads. It's a controlled movement. It was 110%. Yeah, 115%. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. Yeah. And that, you know, it'd be nice to know is that, did you get better then because you were stronger or was it just you were more confident during that phase of the lift and you'd refine technique? So was it a technical improvement with those loads mm-hmm. um, where you can tell, you get feedback immediately, like I said, because you're, it's pulling you forward. You yeah. know if your technique's off. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, did you get stronger? Did mm-hmm. some of those associated muscle groups get stronger and therefore you were moving at a slightly higher velocity once you got to the knee and therefore that carried on through the rest of the motion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's why it can get so technical because you really need to, you know, analyze that in a huge amount of detail. Yeah, right. It's interesting. There's so much more left to to explore. And as you say, like, I don't know if I was stronger. I felt stronger, certainly, but uh, it's totally unclear. And also the fact that, uh, I mean, I was using heavier loads. You might think I was getting stronger, but I would also have my coach there saying, you know, he could he could literally cue me during each pull. And I could feel, all right, is, are my ch- is my chest up? Are my shoulders up? Am I getting my knees out of the way? Which you can't do during a snatch, right? You, you can't cue somebody's yeah. positions in a snatch. Yeah. And that goes back to what I mentioned right at the beginning about how you do the research. So, you know, we could then do that with a group of athletes and say, right, okay, we're going to adopt this approach. Does their snatch performance at the end of it improve? So we do a four-week block of really heavy, you know, first pulls with the snatch grip. Then we move into whatever your normal sort of pre-competition phase might be. And we see if you, you improve more than the group that don't use that heavy first pull. Mm-hmm. And if we find, yes, brilliant, okay, you, they've all got better. That worked. Then we need to say, okay, why? Yeah. So we need to have sort of videoed most lifts and say, is it that the technique improved? We need to find a way of assessing the force generating capacity of some of the, that, that musculature to say, well, does this happen? Is the barbell moving faster once it passes the knee in the forelift? lift? Is it just technique? And um, what's actually happening? And then you can unpick that to identify, you know, what really is the, 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 the beneficial aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes here. So I want to be mindful of your time. Before we wrap up, um, are there things that uh, you'd like to bring up that you think are important, questions I should have asked, uh, things you'd like to just plug in terms of your research or or thoughts on the Power Clean more broadly or its variants? I think overall, it's uh, what we've got to do with this is always be mindful of, right, you've got the research. Most of it is acute. Most of it is let's see what happens when you change load, you change exercise variation. And then you get some training studies coming on the back of that because we need to know the acute effects to be able to hypothesize what happens with, you know, if we program them and look at chronic adaptations and improvements. And what's really interesting is with a lot of the research that um, I've done in Dr. Tim Sukumal has done where we've used a lot of these pulling variations is people will misinterpret some of it and say, well, you're saying that we shouldn't catch. You're saying you shouldn't do that. We've never, ever said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the catching variations are hugely beneficial, but so are the pulling variations, as we've already described and discussed that for some athletes, certain variations will be really, really important and really useful at certain times in their development. 
based on their technical ability, their physical capacity and capability. So I think the key thing is with this is not to go this school of thought works or this works. And you do tend to get polar opposites in anything related to strength and conditioning uh, and some of the things you, you've already described, but they all work. The key thing is not obsessing over um, technology. You know, I think a lot of people, we certainly get with our students, that, you know, they want to become a strength and conditioning coach. So the first thing you have to say is you need to become a good coach. Yes, you need to be able to monitor and evaluate the, your athlete's performance. Uh, and now it's really easy, isn't it? You can get um, uh, any form of smart device, phone, tablet, et cetera, video people. You can get freely downloadable software to then track bar path, et cetera. That's great. But you can't do that if you've got a squad of people you're working with yeah. for every rep they do. So you need to be good at coaching. And then when you're looking at something thinking, what went wrong there? Why, you know, somebody, sometimes they move that fast as you're thinking, you're scratching your head and thinking, well, why did that lift go wrong? But if you have recorded it, you can go back, you can play it back in slow motion, etc. But you've got to be a coach. Um, ultimately, you're the coach. You need to understand the science and some of the technology because you need to be able to effectively and objectively monitor and evaluate the athlete to see if the training program you've put in place has been effective. And it's easy to say, well, okay, my snatch has improved, my jerk has improved, my clean has improved, so that's better. Brilliant, it is. But what we also need to know is, is that better because they were stronger or is that better because they become a technically more proficient lifter? Was it that skill development? So it's pulling all of that together and you need to sort of master all of it. And that's why strength and conditioning, it's a combination of science and art. Mm -hmm. But what you almost need to do is use the science to evaluate your art and your craft because we can think about some of the things we've discussed, whether it's the use of cluster sets, et cetera, and think, oh, I could add this into my training program and see if it improves them. But we need to be able to objectively say, well, yes, it did work and it improved because of this, because it might work this time and then not work next time. And we need to then not just be sat there again, scratching our heads saying, why the hell didn't it work this time? It did before. Is it that there was a specific deficit or deficiency that they had, which now we've eradicated for a while. It'll come back at some stage. And then we know when to use these things. So it's almost using that objective research type approach to just evaluate your practices. Um, and that's where you see some of the good applied research where it is practitioners working in different environments that really are just describing what they did during a period of training and effectively evaluating it to say it resulted in this adaptive response. Then the people that are based in labs in a more lab based can try and identify why it worked. So I think the key thing is to make sure that you can you're a good coach, you understand all the sort of mechanics, the coaching aspect of weightlifting and the biomechanics are why we coach things in a certain way and why this is optimal for want of a better phrase, but then also understand the sort of the underpinning physiology and the adaptations that will take place because then that takes us back to the ability to be able to say, well, I've just done that high volume strength phase. It's not surprising my athlete isn't moving as fast or doesn't feel as fluid as normal They've got a huge amount of fatigue that's built up over time. We've tried to manage it, but it doesn't always work. Let's reevaluate them in a couple of weeks' time. But unless you understand that sort of underpinning physiology that may be there um, and how that might differ between individuals, it's really difficult then to evaluate um, how effective your training, training has been. And then also considering that sort of the strength level in the training age of your athlete, because you're going to get some people doing one program and it works phenomenally well. Others might try a very similar training program. Yeah. And you, again, you're, you know, you're scratching your head thinking, why didn't that work for them? 
and normally it's really obvious stuff that stands out and you'll sit there and go oh yeah it's not surprising that didn't work um and and it's good to share ideas and get feedback from other people uh, and don't feel uh you know afraid of getting something criticized or you being able to justify why you've done what you've done because that's the that's the best way of learning and mm -hmm. i've i've put training programs in front of um eminent professors and had them torn apart and I, I had literally been sat there thinking i don't know why this didn't work this should have worked it's worked before and they just pick up on something and you think oh my goodness why didn't i think of that that's so obvious <laughs> but it's because it's your program it's there in front of you and it's worked before yeah so yeah. definitely get you know get some peers who can help you and give you feedback and not always those that are more experienced you know if you're mentoring athletes uh, mentoring wannabe strength and conditioning coaches weightlifting coaches get their feedback because they'll look at it for a different lens and mm -hmm. sometimes like i said the, the reason i started off doing some of this um, weightlifting research was because a student said well why don't we just do this and i was like i have no idea i'll have a look no nope, there is no research to say that that would work better or not let's do it let's find out mm -hmm. that's so cool um, are there places that people can follow you, learn more about your research, uh, keep up with your work or research? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Paul Comfort1975. Um, I think it is on both of them. And for the research, I don't post that often, so don't expect to be, you know, see stuff on there all the time, <laughs> especially at the moment because we're not in the lab. We can't get in yeah. there. We're locked down at the moment. But um for the research itself, ResearchGate's probably the best place to look. Um, so most researchers will be on ResearchGate now. They're where they can, where copyright permits, they'll put free downloadable versions of their their manuscripts and their research on there, um, mm -hmm. and interact with with you. Um, and if anyone wants to email me, it's uh, p.comfort at sulfur.ac.uk. And I'll re reply to emails as, as soon as I, I get a chance. Awesome. Yeah, I can confirm you. It was a holiday break and I thought, oh, I got to wait a little while before I hear back from you. But no, you got back pretty quickly, which I really appreciate. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Yeah. Dr. Paul Comfort, thank you so much for speaking. And I really, really appreciate it. I have learned a ton. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem at all. Thanks.